the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. If you've spent time in the national park system, you've seen a mix of conditions in terms of a park's infrastructure, its roads, buildings, campgrounds, and trails. Some are in great condition, some not so great. Though the National Park Service has been working hard, thanks to the Great American Outdoors Act, to tackle restoration projects in the parks. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Recently, my wife and I had the opportunity to stop at Grand Teton National Park and the Jenny Lake area, which is the most popular destination in the park. If you've been there, you understand why. The beauty of the lake cradled at the bottom of the most distinctive mountain range in the national park system, if not all of the United States. The trails that lead around the lake and up onto the flanks of the Tetons are in wonderful condition. The overlooks around Jenny Lake are beautiful. It wasn't always so. When the Civilian Conservation Corps built the original trails and overlooks back in the 1930s, they weren't expecting millions of feet to pound them each year. Fortunately, the Grand Teton National Park Foundation in 2013 stepped up to help the National Park Service raise millions of dollars to restore the trails, overlooks, and visitor areas at Jenny Lake as a gift for the National Park Service's centennial in 2016. But that's just one example of how the Grand Teton National Park Foundation has been able to help its namesake park. This year is the Foundation's 25th anniversary, and we've got President Leslie Matson with us to discuss the good work it's accomplished. We'll be back in a minute with Leslie. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Our friends at Interior Federal Credit Union offer BillPay, a free service in digital banking that allows you to pay your utilities, credit cards, and other bills, as well as track your payments quickly and securely. You can schedule exactly when you need your payment sent and whether to make a one-time or recurring payment. It's convenient and good for the environment. To sign up, log into online banking, choose bill payment from the top tab, and follow the instructions to register. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on their homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, Leslie. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You know, I'm, I'm really not sure where we should begin. I mean, the Foundation has been involved in so many great projects at Grand Teton over the past quarter centuries. Where do you think we should kick this off? Um, I think we should talk about Jerry Halpin, who was the founding chair of Grand Teton National Park Foundation, uh, and his work with uh, former superintendent Jack Nichols back in 1997, 
when Jack approached Jerry, who was based out of the DC area, but who also owned the Lost Creek Ranch near Grand Teton National Park. And Jack was hoping for a new visitor center in Grand Teton and approached Jerry with the idea of forming a friends group with the, the purpose of raising money to build a visitor center in Grand Teton National Park. And Jerry said, okay, and went out into our community and recruited several, uh, many folks to participate in the early board and then kind of kick off a planning effort for a new visitor center in Grand Teton. And it really kind of took off from there. I mean, you look at 25 years, and certainly that's a great accomplishment, but when you look at the age of the, the National Park at Grand Teton and the National Park Service at over 100 years old, 25 years isn't that long, and yet you've been able to um, amass an incredible following that has invested heavily in the park through the foundation. It's quite something that you've done, that the foundation has done. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're really proud of that, and really it was the Visitor Center campaign that elevated this organization, which was just a brand new organization founded in 1997. So folks learned that they could be charitable to Grand Teton National Park. I think until the Visitor Center campaign, no one knew that they could make a gift to support extra special things in Grand Teton. So not only did we, at the end of the Visitor Center campaign, which was a public-private partnership, we raised over $15 million and the Park Service contributed or the federal government contributed 8.5 million. When we finished that effort, opened the building, not only did our community and others realize they could make a charitable gift to enhance Grand Teton, so did the park staff. So all of a sudden the park staff who kind of watched this whole process happen, back when we finished in 07, all of a sudden there were all these great ideas coming from the park service of things where private philanthropy could be helpful. And that kind of just set the stage for the future work we've done. So it was yeah. kind of a cool phenomenon, both externally and internally. Yeah. Now the visitor center, you're talking about the Craig Thomas Discovery Center? Correct. Craig Thomas Discovery and Visitor Center, named after the late Craig Thomas, who had taken the lead in securing the $8.5 million appropriation for the building. Yeah, yeah. I was fortunate to know Craig uh, back when I worked for the Associated Press in Wyoming when he was in the state legislature and then, of course, uh, moved on to Congress. And uh, I'm sure he'd be very, very proud to, to have his name attached to that Visitor Center. You know, the the previous visitor center at Moose was really kind of small and, and dated and, and claustrophobic almost. And and the, the, the new visitor center, I mean, it, it's not new, new, but it's it's really a gorgeous facility with um, incredible exhibits to, to let people get a, a, a grounding in the national park. Yes. it's. I, I don't think it could be more different than that old visitor center that had no windows, kind of a stinky bathroom a few dead stuffed animals. It did have a wonderful topographic map, but as right. a local, you know, we never went in there. We went in there to get permits and that was it, kind of turned around and left. So the idea of having a world-class visitor center with views of those amazing mountains and then interpretive exhibits talking about preservation and history and mountaineering and, and the use of technology there, as well as a beautiful auditorium it really couldn't be different, more different from that little dark brown building that was across the street that you remember. But again, that's just one um, aspect that the foundation has been involved in, in 
raising the so-called margin of excellence for the national park. I mean, the the Jenny Lake project um, that was kicked off in 2013. Jenny Lake is the most popular part of the park, and before your project got underway, it, it really kind of showed how popular it had been because it was really weary and, and you know, tree roots were exposed on the trails and the overlooks were sloping down and being eroded into Jenny Lake and whatnot. And the, the resources that the foundation and the Park Service and Interior Department brought to fore were just incredible. I remember touring it during the construction and, and I guess there was a, uh, a crew in from Kentucky that specialized in, in dry, dry rock stacking to duplicate, if I'm right, what the CCC had done back in the 30s. Yeah, you have a great memory. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, it's funny thinking back to the Jenny Lake project. I probably hiked at Jenny Lake 500 times with donors and others to look at the before conditions. And then over time, as it, as you know, one does with any capital project, we had plans and we'd show this is what this will look like. And, you know, each summer we made progress. It was so fun to keep going back with folks and show the dry stone work that was being done in the front country, the amazing work on the trails going up to Inspiration Point, you know, seeing our trail crew who were so proud of the work that they did out there and were happy to give donor tours. And yes, that dry stone um, contractor who came from Kentucky, who came to do that and then shared the technique with our trail crew who now know how to do that. So you're seeing that type of construction all over Grand Teton up in some of the high country too for, you know, that's kind of a design element now uh, in our trail area. So it, it really was phenomenal. And what's really fun now is we actually brought some people out there just about a month ago. And instead of having the plan, so now we go back and it's beautiful and it's done. So now we have the before pictures of all the stuff you described, the roots that are shown the way the access points are all pounded down and we stand on these beautiful overlooks and can show, well, this is what it used to look like. So it's really fun when you get to that point of a project and you can look backwards and see the tremendous uh, work that's been done and the transformation. So it's still really fun for me to go out there. We're really proud of it, our, our board, our staff, and obviously all of our partners at the park. Yeah, yeah, and those overlooks right there at uh, a short uh, two or three minute walk from visitor center to the shore of Jenny Lake, and you've got those uh, three dimensional topographic maps of the mountains, and you know everybody gravitates there to to take a selfie, to take a group picture, and they've got this beautiful stonework that is not crumbling down and, and damaging the environment. Yeah, it's fun to go out there because what we envisioned was people going to those maps as you described, and then sitting and relaxing on all those stone walls. And that's what we envisioned and that's what people do. Now, building isn't the only thing you do. I mean, you you help the Park Service acquire property. I mean, you uh, were able to um, close on 640 acres, I believe, um, on Antelope Flats. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was, um, that was a lot of high energy, a lot of adrenaline. Um, I'm not sure I'd sign up to do that again in the short amount of time that we had, but it certainly was incredibly gratifying. That was a, another partnership with the National Park Service, and we also had a partner in the National Park Foundation, Will Shafroth, their CEO, and I actually right. knew each other for decades. But the circumstances were such that the state of Wyoming wanted to sell this piece of property, state-owned land, to the National Park Service. 
and needed to get appraised value for that because it's as, as allowed by the Wyoming constitution, those funds go into a long-term endowment for public education here. Uh, with the agreement with the National Park Service and the state was coming close to an end. So we were asked to participate with about a year left in this agreement and the appraised value for this 640 acre parcel was $46 million. Wow. Uh, National Park Service uh, appropriated $23 million from the Land Water Conservation Fund, thanks to John Jarvis and Sally Jewell at the time. And so we went out and raised $23 million in nine months. So that could be purchased by the deadline in 2016. So it was pretty crazy. But in the end, what it's such a great result under Wyoming law, that land could have been subdivided into 19 35-acre lots. And it would have been horrifying to impact the migration routes there, as well as the scenic corridor, that beautiful part of the park. So not only did we make sure that that property stayed open, but also that money went into an endowment for public schools in Wyoming. So it's a win-win for conservation and for Wyoming education, too. Yeah. And I believe um, once the land was acquired, the, the Park Service went in and and regraded it, so to speak, to to allow for um, native species to native plant species to return. Yeah, you know, we're doing a lot of work in that area with revegetating that whole Kelly area that was utilized by early um, inhabitants here, early settlers. So, a lot of cool work that's been going on there, and it's a long process to replace non-natives with natives. And of course, the growing season here. <laughs> Jackson Hole is like five minutes, so it takes many years for it to regrow. But yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things going on in that area. In addition to the Mormon Row Historic District, which is just a stone's throw from the Antelope Flats parcel. And that's a beautiful area with these gorgeous historic barns, one of the most photographed barns in the world. And we've been working with the park on preservation and interpretation of that site. So we're currently, that's a current project of ours as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the first time I saw Grand Teton was back in 1985. And to appreciate the foresight that Horace Albright and John Rockefeller had back in, I think it was the 20s, when Horace um, brought Rockefeller down into that valley and said, we have to preserve this place. I mean, imagine what the Teton Valley would look like today if it were not a national park. I agree. Yeah. I, have a, I have a good friend here named Mike Wardell, who's a wonderful conservationist, and he says a similar thing. He said, imagine hot dog stands on the shores of Jenny Lake. Now, if it wasn't for the two of them, who knows what this place would be. Yeah, and, and all the starter castles. Yeah, so yeah. You know, we're really great leadership there for sure. And, you know, the the idea of private philanthropy enhancing Grand Teton continues in everything that we do. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking today with Leslie Matson, the president of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation, about all the good work the foundation has been able to achieve for the national park. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. 
Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at EvergladesFoundation.org. Okay, we're back with Leslie Madsen, the president of uh, the Grand Teton National Park Foundation. You know, Leslie, one of the amazing projects that, and, and it's amazing to me, I mean, the foundation does a lot of work with the park on, on wildlife and whatnot, and one of the longstanding projects that you've had are the bear boxes and, and, and soliciting donations to, to put these bear-proof boxes in, in camp campsites around the park, which are, they're so vital to keep bears away from human food. And somebody, I think it's $1,000, will, will help you buy a bear box and the donor gets their name put on the box? Yeah, it's incredible. We worked with uh, former superintendent Mary Scott on this um, many years ago, and the park identified that they would like to have a 1,000 bear-proof storage containers in every front country campsite in Grand Teton, and that number's 1,000. So we started with Mary, who was a wonderful superintendent and really had a soft spot in her heart for bears, as do many people. Uh, if you ever get a chance to see one in the wild, you just kind of fall in love immediately. So this idea of providing these bear boxes and allowing donors to, you know, put a little plaque on there that says happy birthday or you know, whatever that might be in uh, for conservation of bears in Grand Teton. So we're actually getting close to the thousand dollar goal or a thousand uh, number for how many we need. So we're, uh, I bet we have a couple year, more years of work to do uh, to put, complete that, which is really, truly incredible. And, you know, bears, when I first moved here, we're in the northern end of Grand Teton, if, if that. And now uh, bears, both black bears and grizzly bears are all the way through the southern end of the park and also coming into our community here in Jackson Hole. So proper food storage is really important for bear conservation. So yeah, that's been a really fun project. And if one, if somebody buys a bear box, uh, the person it's being gifted to or buys it, we send them a stuffed bear and a really <laughs> box, but we also provide all sorts of educational material that describes bear safety, the difference in how you can identify a black bear versus a grizzly bear, and just some information on bear conservation. So it's a really fun program. Yeah. How, how many more boxes till you reach 1,000? I think we have about 100 left to go. And what happens once you reach that number? We say yay, I guess. <laughs> we'll, we'll look to the park service to see what, what are the other things like this that we could do on their behalf. I think there's some talk of doing replacing some of the storage containers up in the back country. And that would require, I'm sure, some helicopter use. So those those won't be at the bargain price that you described. Those uh -oh. ones will probably be a little more pricey. Do you take installment payments? Sure, why not? All right, I'll, I'll give you a call after this. Something else that has been really impressive from where I'm sitting is the programs the foundation operates to get 
teens and youth involved in the national park there in Grand, in Jackson, Grand Teton, the, the Pura Vida program to, to get the Latinos in the local high school involved. Is that still going strong? It is. That's, um, I think we may be 10 years in that program this year. Yeah, you know, we have a really creative team uh, in our park here. And we started first with a traditional program. We call it the Youth Conservation Program. And that's for kids 16 to 19 to work on trails and they get paid. And that was going along great and still does. Um, but we had a wonderful team member in Grand Teton who had this idea of engaging our local Latino youth and worked with the community to establish this program for middle school kids. And, you know, when we started it, there was a lot of uh, our, this part of our community, which is significant and growing all the time. These families weren't spending any time in Grand Teton. So this program established an opportunity for these kids to come out and experience being in the park, seeing wildlife. And then at the end of the program, each family gets a park pass. So really an encouragement to get families to utilize these public lands. So yes, really proud of that program and the impact it's had. And the kids who are, who've gone through it are now leading other programs in our community. So it's, it's fun to be able to be, to participate. You know, I've been here for 18 years. So I've been here for such a long time. I get to watch the impact of these programs and these young people grow up and see what they, they're doing with this, these inspirational things that they were able to participate in that then changed their life. Yeah, I'm wondering what, what sort of traction that, that program has had. I mean, is it something that, you know, the, the kids are involved while they're in high school and then they move on? Or have you seen any lasting impact? Have you seen any, um, any of the youth inspired to possibly either work for the Park Service or work in one of the related fields, whether it's biology or botany or archaeology or, or whatnot? That's a good question. You know, over a thousand kids have gone through all of our programs, not just Pura Vida. So we are, we have been tracking that because early in the program, when I spoke with investors, our donors in these youth programs, I would say things like, you know, we're, we're making the future stewards of our public lands. So that was 18 years ago. Well, 18 years later, I wanted to determine, is that true? So we we did a lot of research and reaching out to a lot of the kids, the alumni of these programs to find out what they're doing, what their career choices were. We actually made a video about it, which uh, is on our website. But I can say that, you know, for the Pura Vida program, you know, we've seen kids who went through that in their middle school and then applied and were hired by the youth conservation program. So they worked on the trails and then from there worked on the trail crew in Grand Teton National Park. Um, so we can track these kids and National Park Service Academy, same thing. You know, many of these kids who went through our program have been hired as work for, in the workforce in, in the National Park Service across the country. So, you know, you got to start with one, one person at a time and but 18 years go by pretty fast. And then all of a sudden you're talking about real numbers. You know, I'm wondering um, some of the other projects that the foundation has been involved with is uh you know, restoring some of the historical structures there, the the Bar BC Dude Ranch, the Lucas Fabian Homestead. Yep. Do you have a, a long list of additional structures that need some TLC? Yeah, that's interesting you asked that because just yesterday, um, a subcommittee of our board, this cultural resource subcommittee, which is part of our long range plan, we're kicking off our third long range plan since I've been CEO. And we had a group go out with of our board and our staff and park staff and went and toured some of the cultural 
buildings in Grand Teton. And they came back and were so excited about the opportunity. There's some wonderful stories to tell about the history of Jackson Hole and uh, the, the founding of Grand Teton National Park. So yeah, uh, we're, there's a lot we're looking at. And basically in this long range planning process, we're identifying projects. The Park Service will let us know which are priorities. And then we kind of align with them based on cost, donor interest, and you know the timing of when these projects could be done. So yeah, there's a, a nice list of some really very important historic properties that need some love and affection from, from us along with the Park Service to bring them to where they should be. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We've got Leslie Madsen, the president of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation with us today, talking about Grand Teton National Park and, and how the foundation can work to raise the margin of excellence at the park. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. You know, Leslie, you mentioned donor interest. Do you get much support for wastewater treatment ponds or sewer facilities? I mean, is it is it tough to, to get donors engaged in, in some of the less sexy projects, or, or are you not involved in some of those projects? Yeah, that's a great question. We're not going to do those projects. And, you know, what's wonderful is I've worked with three superintendents here, Mary Scott, David Vela, now Chip Jenkins, and all of our partners truly understand that our philanthropic investment needs to be for extra special things. You know, going back to the start of our conversation about the visitor center, you know, the visitor center in Moose, the Craig Thomas Discovery and Visitor Center is really the iconic example of what a public-private partnership should be. You know, the private money mixed with the federal money brought that to a whole beautiful, amazing level. So um, our superintendents really understand that and they would never come to me to say, we need a new wastewater treatment plant. I mean, we have an amazing team here and we're really good at what, we're gonna, what we do, but even we probably would not have that much success with our donor community on a wastewater treatment plant. So, um, you know, I think it's a really good understanding with our partner of what we can do and what our donor community is interested in investing in. And, the other thing I would add is that every project we do, our partner has skin in the game. So I, you know, I've kind of rattled off all these capital projects. In every one of those projects, the park brought funding to the table as well. And that's important for our donor community also to know that 
the philanthropic community is not funding 100% of this, that they have a piece of it also. So it's really, we've been doing it long enough. I think we have a really great understanding with not only the superintendent, but then his team, you know, his chiefs and the other folks that we work with in Grand Teton. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that understanding because certainly in the 25 years that the foundation has existed, um, the, the playing field has has kind of tilted a little bit in terms of philanthropy and, and park service budgets and what Congress will fund and what Congress isn't funding and and some of the pressures put on, you know, friends groups across the country to, hey, could you, you know, spend some money repairing this structure, something that the Park Service should be able to do with congressional funding? Yeah, no, I think a couple things. One is it's really important that we hold our uh, the folks in D.C.'s feet to the fire on, on funding the public lands and these national parks, and they should do their part and, and, and do what they need to do and not start relying on friends groups to make up the difference or to cut a park's budget because they've got a strong friends group. So, you know, that is something we always talk about with our, when I sit down with somebody new and doesn't know anything about the, our work. And in addition, we actually have a criteria for evaluating projects that we did in 2007 in regards to this is what this organization is looking at. And we, we set that as a policy. It was voted on in 07 and actually hasn't been changed at all. And it's, it's there so that I, I handed it to Chip and his deputy the other day just to remind them of that criteria. And, you know, it's what the board looks to. And we, we did that to support future park leaders as well as any future staff. So that's, you know, we have a really formal process set up at the Park Service in terms of the back and forth about what we will fund and their annual request to us. So we have a great relationship and it's um, full of, real respect, but we also have an internal process that we set up over time so that we we have a formal back and forth when they they request funds from us. You know, I'm a paddler. My wife and I love to, to get out on uh, the water with a kayak or a canoe or whatnot. And um, one of the projects that you've been involved with uh, the past couple of years and is going forward is um, something of particular interest to me, the, the Snake River Gateways Project. H- how did that come all about? Is that... Um, I mean, some might say, well, Congress should have taken care of that. Um, yeah, good question. I mean, that is another combo project, right? So the federal government is bringing forward money, uh, park services, and then this Snake River Gateways, three access points along the Snake River in the park, Moose, Pacific Creek, and the dam. And Pacific Creek is completed and is absolutely beautiful. The dam is under construction right now. There's actually going to be an accessible fishing component. So someone in a wheelchair could roll down next to the snake right there by the Jackson Lake Dam and fish. And there's never been a proper put in there. There's never been a proper ramp. So people would drag their fishing boats or whatever over the cobble and Hmm. it's kind of not so great. So, and then that'll be done here, you know, before the snow flies in Jackson. And then next summer we'll focus on moose. But a fun part of that one too not only do I have to paddleboard the snake to show donors those <laughs> access points, which is a tough day in the office. Yeah, um, we had a we had a great committee uh, made up of you know, engineers and scientists and hydrologists, but then we brought in river guides, fishing guides, folks like yourself, kayakers, and we all sat around the table and we looked at each one of those components of the the access points and talk about what made the most sense 
And at the end of the day, everybody's been happy because, you know, you want to make sure the fishing guide can turn around, back up, et cetera. So all of that, all of the input was taken into consideration. So, you know, it's really fun when we do these big capital projects because we really try to engage the users. It's not just us sitting in a room and saying, oh, let's do that. We want people's input and the users are the ones who understand what the shortcomings are, what the opportunities are. So, yeah, that's been a really, really fun project. Yeah, yeah. I saw them working on it when we drove over the dam the other day at the dam. What what does the finished access point look like? I mean, you mentioned the accessible fishing opportunities, and and I'm guessing um, some sort of boat ramp. And I, I hope it's nothing like they have down at uh, Lake Powell, where it's you know, 14 um, access. You know, the ramp is 100 feet across. Yeah. No. Well, Pacific Creek. If you if you go down there, and if people are familiar with that area, you know, there was one ramp, and it was pretty dilapidated. And there was, you know, there were no benches, there was no place to sit. So now we have a nice little overlook by the same gentleman who you spoke of earlier with a dry stack stone. So you have a consistency of design there. You get some great interpretation, including some references to how the Native Americans in this area used the snake and what they called it. We've got some natural resource information. And then probably one of the most important components of this project is a description of the Snake River and how to use it. So in, in looking at it as, as if you would a ski run so that from the dam to Pacific Creek is pretty green circle from Pacific Creek to dead man's is blue. And then from dead man's to moose is really black diamond. So really reinforcing the safety message and making sure that people know what they're getting into when they get in their canoe or raft or whatever, if they're not with a professional guide. So, um, but a finished project will look, well, moose too, I just have to say, when you floated from dead man's to moose and you floated one of the most beautiful sections of river in the world and you take off in moose, you have the back of the house of the administrative building in Grand Teton, you have a little outhouse, you have a dusty, dry parking lot, and there's just nothing. It's just the whole thing is quite a downer after you've had this incredibly beautiful experience. People get out of their boats and there's cobble there. It's easy to twist ankles. So when that's said and done, there'll be a lot more area for people to wait for their pickup, for their guided fishing or guided floating. And just safety is the utmost importance. So people, when they get out and get on, can um, easily get off their in and out of their boats. And again, lots of interpretation on a wild and scenic river. And a lot of folks don't know what a wild and scenic river is. So just all about education and conservation and stewardship. So in addition to the capital improvements, just a really elevated sense of educating visitors to how this place is so special. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great. You know, I'll have to ask you a tangent. Um, Jackson Lake is pretty small these days. Um, I mean, it was a small lake originally, and then they built the dams, and it, it flooded a, a larger portion. And they've really let the, the water down this year. Um, there's some mudflats, quite a bit of mudflats up near Lizard Creek and whatnot. Any insights on, on what it's going to look like going forward? I mean, is this the, the new normal, or um, does it depend on how much rain we get, how much snow in the wintertime? Yeah, I mean, it is dependent on the snow and the high country. And then, you know, the Park Service doesn't have 
the authority to manage that dam. It's the Bureau of Reclamation. So there's a lot of conversation that's been occurring between the public and the Park Service and the Bureau of Reclamation, because when the waters and the flows are manipulated, it can be impactful not only to the fishing, but then to the fish. So there's just a lot of conversation with the Bureau of Rec because ultimately the water rights are Idaho's and the agricultural mm. community in Idaho. So it's a complex situation that a lot of people who care deeply about not only the fishery, but the resource. So a lot of good conversation. Our superintendent, Chip Jenkins, wants to do some analysis of just the overall health of the Snake River. And I'm sure we'll be participating in that. And there'll be a lot of stakeholders involved with that, those conversations. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's pretty sad. We were, my wife and I were up in, in the park back in June with our kayaks. And we stayed at Coulter Bay. And so the, the first day we we went to the uh, the beach up there. And boy, it was a long walk over the cobbles down to the water level. Yeah, we'll hope for a big winter this winter to help. We need a couple, two, three winters of good snow years to get Jackson Lake back to where uh, we're used to seeing it. Yeah, it's going to be a while. Um, I, I think we've covered most of the projects that I'm aware of. Um, do you have some exciting projects on the drawing board that you can talk about? or is, uh, Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the Taggart Lake project. So Taggart sure. Lake is one of the first hiking experiences a lot of people come to uh, in Grand Teton. There's been some social science done out there, and it's, I think it's close to 75% of visitors are first-time visitors to the park, and it's their first stop. We've got some great ideas and working with the Park Service and other partners on accessibility there. Uh, walking up to Taggart Lake is not the challenge that some of these other uh, high mountain lakes are. So there's a ability to do some trail work there. So there's someone who's in a wheelchair or uh, some other utilizing some other accessible equipment that they could get to the lake. So really some cool cutting edge work there at Taggart Lake in addition to increasing the parking and obviously more interpretation. Maybe you'll see some of those pretty dry stack stone walls. Um, there's just a lot of cool things out there. And this summer was the 150th anniversary of the Hayden Expedition that wow. um, William I'm not Rush sure how Taggart, I missed that. Yeah, William Rush Taggart was uh, part of. So just kind of a cool kickoff to this campaign for Taggart Lake, which will be a $6 million raise from us and $3 million contribution from the Park Service. So we're literally in the very early stages. We've raised about $1.5 million. We've done numerous uh, hiking trips out there with members of our board so that everybody kind of is clear on what we're trying to do. And we're in that creative phase. So uh, that over the next few months, we'll kind of kick that off in a more public way. But that that's going to be a fun one. And, you know, it's tough to have to go hiking for work, but I, I'm <laughs> sure I can persevere. You know, I, I recommend people don't do what I do because, you know, to, to have to go out into the park system and, and you know, write stories from there is cruel and unusual punishment. I know. It's tough. Tough, tough duty. Yeah. Well, the, the Taggart Lake Project and, and whatever else you have on your drawing board, do you have to wait for the, the Snake River Gateways Project to end before you turn a shovel on the Taggart Lake Project or other projects? You know, managing the timing of projects with our partner and their project management staff is something we have to take in consideration. So, and then of course, here in Jackson Hole, we have a, a building time 
of, you know, it's a short period of time when we don't have snow on the ground. So, you know, we're constrained by, by the seasons as well. So the funding is complete for the Snake River Gateway. So we're finished fundraising for that. So now another season of construction. And then right. we'll be, we're now we're in the fundraising phase for Taggart. And they, uh, I don't think the park is going to be shoveling the ground until 2025 on that one. So we try to time these things and clearly work closely with our park partner on figuring out when these things can begin and end. And then we align our fundraising so that we can meet those deadlines too. So a lot of Excel spreadsheets in addition to, you know, hiking in the park to figure out how to make sure we can manage all these things. And so for listeners who want to learn more about these projects or, or make a donation, they can go to your website, which I believe is gtnpf.org. That is it. Yes. And we've been updating our website and there's some great videos and um, yeah, that's, Pretty much goes into detail of every project that we do from all the wildlife work, the cultural resources, all the visitor enhancements, and then all of our youth programs. So yeah, we've had a great year. It's fun to be able to celebrate 25 years, but we're we're in it for the long haul. So we'll keep doing this work. Yeah, well, it's it's good work that you do. Thank you. Well, Leslie, thanks so much for joining me today and, and happy 25th birthday for the foundation. It's a, a, a great um a great anniversary to celebrate, but as you said, you're in it for the long run. So um, let's get back in touch in another 25 years. Oh, perfect. Yes, I'll be talking to you from my wheelchair, I'm sure. But thanks. <laughs> thanks for your time and for your interest in what we do. We really appreciate it. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you'll visit the Foundation's website, www.gtnpf.org to learn more about their programs and support for Grand Teton National Park. Next week, Lynn Riddick walks through Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve with Superintendent Kristen Hayes to understand the park's role in bison conservation. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rabinchek. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.